0: What a sweet way for us to begin our time this morning singing of what we have in Christ Jesus. We've been talking a lot in Joshua about this inheritance that was stored up for the people of God in the promised land. But it's a reminder for us this side of the cross of the inheritance that the Lord has richly afforded to us in Christ that belongs to us that is guaranteed on the other side. So we're thankful for that. Thank you for the worship team for setting our hearts and minds in order as we prepare to go to God's Word, particularly as we resume our study of the book of Joshua this morning. So I encourage you to go ahead and open those Bibles you have in front of you to Joshua chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, have no fear. We have our two bench press champions in this church who are going to haul those heavy Bibles to the back and you just throw your hand up and they'll make sure that you can uh, get one so you can follow along this morning as we We go from Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. But now you have hopefully uh, caught on to the point that we've tried to establish these last few weeks, that Joshua is a book about faith. Joshua, at its core, is a book about faith. It is a book about trusting God at every step of your spiritual journey. In the same way that the Israelites were on a pilgrimage to their final home, so we, as God's people, are considered to be sojourners and strangers in this world until we arrive finally at God's eternal inheritance that he has laid up for us as well. And as such, there is much that we can glean from this ancient but beloved book and in recent weeks, we've talked about that nature of faith, what it looks like to begin by stepping forward in faith. We've learned and talked about what it means last week to trust God, to trust that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and that there's every reason that we have to be able to cast our lives upon him. And we're going to build upon that here today as we remember just who it is that leads us. So we're gonna read this morning from Joshua chapter three and four. We are covering two chapters, so we have a lot of ground to cover in these next forty-five minutes together. So if you would please stand as we read from Joshua chapter three, and we're gonna jump around a little bit, so I'll help you navigate as we do. So Joshua chapter three is where we're gonna start and in verse one. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Jumping down to verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people... And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those uh, flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel passed over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Chapter 4, verse 1, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from among the people, from each tribe a man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called 12 men from among the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off so that the stone, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Jump down to verse 19. Then the people came out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took up of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until they passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So, reads God's word for us to meditate on this morning, so you may be seated, and let's pray together and ask for the Lord's favor on our time now. And now, Lord, I do pray, I ask for your favor on our time. This text really is a call for us to set our sights back on the Lord, and so we pray that as we behold the majesty of our great God through this text, I pray that you would help us to forsake the things of this world that seek to distract us, and that you would cause us, Lord, to set our eyes back on you, to remind ourselves, Lord, that you are the one who leads your people. So humble our hearts now and strengthen me, Lord, to proclaim your word clearly and boldly for the glory of your name we ask. Amen. If you were to go into my office here at the church, you would notice on my shelves, in addition to all the the books and papers that are there, all kinds of different artifacts and trinkets and McDonald's Happy Meal toys, you would notice, and many people have before, that there is a signed baseball and card of the very player who signed that baseball card. Uh, It's a guy by the name of Tim Hewlett, a guy that most people would probably not recognize. Uh, Tim Hewlett was a native of Springfield, Illinois, which is where I also was from. I got the chance to meet Tim at a uh, FCA banquet when I was very young, seven, eight years old, very, very young. And really, in many ways, there's nothing all that impressive about this ball and card even Tim Hewlett himself. In fact, if you were to look at this ball and come up after service and look at it, I'll set it down here afterwards, and if you were to look at it, you can hardly even make out the handwriting on it. It's almost faded with time. And if you were to look on the back of the, the card here and look at some of the career statistics for Tim Hewlett, uh, you know that they're not all that impressive. Uh, he was a lifetime 250 batting average, which for those of you who know nothing of baseball, that's very average. Over the course of his 12-year career, he had 48 home runs, 220 RBIs. Again, nothing all that impressive. And so you ask yourself, well, so Pastor Scott, why in the world do you give real estate on your shelf to something as insignificant as this? And I would tell you that it has nothing to do with the value of the baseball and the card itself. It has everything to do with the memory associated with it. You see, this ball and card are some of the earliest memories I have of spending time with my father. It's one of the first events I remember us going to as a a father and son. I was getting into baseball very early in my life. And uh, there is a special memory of that day, even though this player I knew nothing about, never seen him play, but yet, the memory associated with spending time with my father and learning and growing in a love of something together. I mean, really, if, again, you look at this ball and you look at everything that's in it, it's really of no value. If I were to sell that thing, I'll get hardly anything on eBay for it. There's hardly any value. But the memory associated with it is priceless. You see, the ball tells a story and serves as a talking point when, uh, with others when they're in my office. It's my own version of a memorial stone similar to what we encounter here in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Uh, we see that these chapters here, and in fact, they serve very, very clearly to us as a memorial stone, not for us to remember the event and the miracle itself but the God who is behind the miracle. In fact, we're going to learn here this morning that we must remember that God is the one who leads us forward in faith. Everything that happens in these chapters is meant to serve as a reminder to the people, not to just appreciate the miracle itself, but the God who works behind the miracle, the one who is leading them all the way. There is a key emphasis in this story on remembrance for the people of Israel. Why? Because they, like us, are naturally a forgetful people. They, like us, struggle with their minds. It's okay to have reminders. Reminders, in fact, are a good thing. I'm thankful for all the ways that we can remember things. Perhaps your way of remembering things is to do the post-it note system all over your mirror and your kitchen counters, whatever it may be. I'm very thankful for the reminders app on my phone so that I can put important dates and things in there that otherwise I would naturally forget. Or perhaps my favorite personal reminder system is the person who tells you, hey, can you remind me of this later on? Usually that happens with my wife right before we go to bed when I'm at the worst stage of remembering and she tells me, hey, can you remind me of this in the morning? (laughs) Like, There's no way I'm going to remember that, right? Now, reminders are a good thing and it should not pain us to be reminded of things that have such eternal significance to them. And we learned about that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, For me to remind you of these things is no trouble, but is actually safety and for your well-being. And so we want to remember today from Joshua 3 and 4, we want to see this God who leads Israel, who also by extension leads us forward in faith. And so we're going to look at those reminders this morning, but before we do so, we're going to do so very similar to last week, where we're going to go back through this story, give it some color, and then we're going to go back and see what is it that we should be reminded. So let's look at this story this morning in four phases. The first phase is this, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, we see God's people readied. God's people' ready. The time has come for these people, after more than 40 years. Think about that for just a moment after 40 years, to finally enter into this land. Imagine the patience that they've had to exert for all this time. I don't know about you, but after 40 seconds at the microwave, I'm ready for my food. <laughs> Forty years. I can only imagine the combination of nerves and excitement they must have been feeling this day. But before they set off, Joshua knows that they must be readied. This is not some act that it should be approached lightly as if it uh, is just another day for them. No, this is a defining moment in their lives and in redemptive history And so the focus of these opening verses is to get their focus back on God. And Joshua does so in a very tangible way in this chapter. After all, what was it that dwelt among God's people to remind them constantly of his presence? It also was an artifact. It's known as the Ark of the Covenant. This religious, this holy box that contained the Ten Commandments, Reminders of God's goodness, the, the, the budded rod of Aaron, a jar of manna from the wilderness, right? All these timely keepsakes for them of how God had led them all the way. But most importantly, a reminder that God is among them. And the reason I bring that up is because the Ark of the Covenant is pivotal in chapters three and four. Because you know how many times it is mentioned in two chapters? Seventeen times. 17 times in two chapters. Because the author does not want us to lose sight of God's presence that leads his people. And so we see in these opening verses here how the leaders command the people to prepare themselves by knowing that they will be following the ark when it is led away by the Levitical priests. The emphasis here is on seeing and observing continually, not taking their eyes off of the ark. In verse four, we see that they are to observe and to follow from a distance of what, uh, two, uh, sorry, two thousand cubits, which since all of you are mathematicians you 've already done the conversion in your head, and you know, well that 's about a thousand yards, right? You're absolutely correct. about ten football fields of length that 's significant. Why such distance? Some might think, well it 's because of the, the holiness of the ark itself, which it is a very holy artifact and, but remember, they're going to pass right by it as they go across the river. No, verse 4 tells us, so that you may know the way to go. That you may more clearly see this as it leads you on. And in fact, the, the emphasis I think that it's going to get to here is that, that they could see and observe the miracle that God was going to do amongst these people. There's emphasis here on this readiness to see what the Lord would do in the same way that a a, a coach tells his batter in baseball, don't take your eye off the ball. See it, watch it, follow through with it. And in verses 5 and 6, Joshua calls for further readiness. He says, in light of what you are about to do, consecrate yourselves, sanctify yourselves, make yourselves holy for this event. This consecration would have been, uh, for the Israelites, included all kinds of ritualistic washings and cleanings to abstain from sexual relations, to abstain from certain foods, right? Their bodies, their minds, their hearts, their souls, God wanted them to be prepared Joshua wanted their complete focus to be on God so that they would fully appreciate and remember what he was about to do for them. And so we see in verse 6, so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And so the journey begins. And this leads us into phase 2 where we see God's servant is exalted. God's servant exalted and chapter 3, verse 7, we see that God now turns his attention specifically to Joshua. Look at what he says here. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is the secondary plan of God that day. The first plan is to get the Israelites across the water to get them into the promised land. But his secondary plan that day is that they would see Joshua in a whole new light. That they would see that God's presence was with Joshua in the same way that it was with Moses. After all, this was the comfort that God gave to Joshua back in chapter one, remember? How could Joshua lead and be strong and courageous? By knowing that God's presence was what led him. And remember, the nature of this day is a real crossroads for the Israelites. Not just crossing of the river, but a crossroads in their history. Again, he's talking here about Moses' death. His legacy still looms large, even though Moses is well past now. There's been this transition in leadership, and the task before them is a big one, right? This is a crucial day for God's people and how things are going to go. And, spoiler alert... We find that God does exactly as he promises. By the time we get to chapter 4, we see the impact of these events on the people. Chapter 4, verse 8, the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. Verse 10, they did everything according to what the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And what was the result? Verse 14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. You see, that day, the people saw something important in Joshua that they had previously seen in Moses. Their leader was being led by God. Their leader was living by faith in the very God whose presence was guiding them into the promised land. And that then leads us into the third phase of the story, the one that most emphasis is, or most time is devoted to, which is God's power displayed. God's power displayed. We see this in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Look at verses 10 to 13 of chapter 3 for a moment. Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Mosquito Bites. Okay, you're still with me. Good. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord... Of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe of man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Notice in verses eleven and thirteen there they use this phrase, the Lord of all the earth. Joshua wants to remind the people that the one who leads them is the one who rules over everything. He's the one who rules over all of creation. Nothing is too big for him, but that includes the enemies of the land. You see, what the author is doing here is strategic. He's building kind of a a logical argument. And it goes something like this. If God can tame a raging river, he's more than capable to fend off Canaanite armies. If God can stop the waters from flowing, you better believe he can deliver you from your enemies. This is important because this is where the first generation of Israelites forgot, wasn't it? After they crossed the Red Sea and had gone through the wilderness and then the Lord had provided time and time again for them, they got to the promised land, they saw the Canaanites and what did they forget? That their God is able, that their God can defend, that their God can deliver. They doubted. We see how much we are like them often when we forget God's goodness in our own lives, past and in future. So easy to have experienced in the past, and yet when we're in the moment, to forget so quickly. It's a reminder for us that nothing is too big for God to handle. It's the logic, the same logic that Paul uses later on in Romans 8 when he talks about Christ, the side of the cross. After all, if God has already given you the most important deliverance through Jesus Christ, the Son, how is he not able to give you everything else as a result? I like the way that Dale Ralph Davis says it. He says this, quote, The rescue at the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan River, and the death and resurrection of Jesus are explosions of God's power that are meant to color the whole horizon of the believer's life in order to assure us that the God who so mightily handles great emergencies is surely adequate for smaller crises and anxieties that beset us. so Joshua gives the final marching orders for the day, the, what they and the priests should expect as they move forward into the Jordan River. And he begins to hint at something that we're going to see later on with these 12 men, something that they have an important job to do that he's beginning to hint at here. But for the priests, the marching orders are clear. Walk into the water, and as soon as you do, the flow of the river will cease. And so what happens? Verses 14 to 17, we see that God is true to that. But before the miracle takes place, you see the author kind of building the suspense of the story. You see in verses 14 and 15, he's kind of slowly building the anticipation of this moment And I love the way he does this here in verses 14 and 15. We get to verse 15. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water. And then we interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Seriously? This is where we're going to put an insert a disclaimer for the people? Uh, it's like a, a TV program, right? Where you're, there's this anticipation of this drama that's building or a game and some big moment's about to happen and then cut to commercial. You're like, what's the big deal here? Why, what is the author doing? And he does so to throw in a footnote, right? How about you? But most books I read, footnotes are not the most exciting part of the book. And if anything, it has to do with the geography of the river, Why? Like, what? Why do we need to know about the Jordan River overflowing its bank throughout the time of the harvest? What gives? Well, it's only by understanding the nature of the river that you can fully appreciate the nature of the miracle. Because according to chapter 4, verse 19, it was the time of the barley harvest, it was the first month of their calendar year, which meant that the river was most likely at what we would call a flood stage. This meant that the floodplain of the river could have been anywhere from 200 yards to a mile wide. Think about that for a moment. You Ever seen the Mackinac River overflow and how far out that goes across the fields and all the brush and all the things you've got to make your way through? That's a pretty big task. The current of the river would have been extra strong because of the drop in elevation from north to south. I mean, this is, in other words, no babbling brook or peaceful stream. This is a raging river. And if any of you have ever played the Oregon Trail video game, you know the only thing more dangerous than getting dysentery is crossing a river, right? Staring at the river would have been a test of faith for God's people that day. A chance for them to either hesitate in fear or to advance forward in faith. And in verse 16, we see that God stays true to his promises. The waters rose, it said, in a heap at Adam, which according to most scholars could have been anywhere from 15 miles north of this location. That means that nearly a quarter of the Jordan River Valley would have been affected by this. That's how all the peoples of the lands heard about this. They even experienced these dry lands themselves. It would have struck fear into the hearts of the Canaanites, knowing that the Israelites were coming. And in verse 17, they crossed over on dry ground in full obedience to what God said. We learn later on in chapter 4 verses 10 through 13 that this included the two and a half tribes, the the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, right? The ones from chapter 1 who they were worried if they were going to go with them, right? Moses had already given them their allotment to the east. And the charge of chapter 1 was, don't forget your brothers. Go with your brothers into battle when that time comes. And here we see that they stay true to their word. And 40,000 men of war go over ready to fight for God and their rightful inheritance. And just as amazing as the stopping of the water is the resuming of the water. Verses 15 to 18 remind us that as soon as the priests move away from the river, it restores itself just like it was, as if nothing had even happened The second great water crossing in Israel's history was made complete at the hands of this powerful and gracious God, which calls for remembrance, which is where we go lastly in this account. The fourth movement is God's character remembered. And this brings us back to those 12 representatives from each of the tribes of Israel. What was their job in this story? We learn that they had the job of stone gatherers right they were the the rock carriers this is where the emphasis of the story really gets to the point is not merely to have a miracle for the sake of having a miracle not just for the sake of being amazed but a miracle that would remind the people why they could trust God and follow him in faithful obedience as they entered the land and in order to accomplish this, God commanded Joshua to have 12 men, one from each tribe, take a stone from the middle of the river where the priest stood with the ark. And Their job was to take it from the middle of the river where Joshua had placed them and take them all the way to the other side and place them on the side of the promised land, the land that the Lord had promised for generations to give them. And what was the ultimate purpose? Chapter four, verse six. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? You shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the rest of the chapter unpacks the meaning of this sign and what it was meant to accomplish. In other words, it was, it was a witnessing tool. It was a way to tell others about their great God. We learn later in verse 20 that these stones were set up at a place called Gilgal, which means circle. We don't know if that was named after they set up the stones, meaning they maybe set them up in a circle or if that's just something that was happened just ironic, right? But we notice here In these verses, when they set up these stones, notice what God does not tell them to do. He does not tell them, hey, make sure when you set these up, get a plaque, inscribe on it the date, the memory, everything associated with it, and plaster it right on the side so anybody coming can read it and see about it, right? Like we think about most historical landmarks today do. God doesn't tell them to do that because that defeats the purpose. God wants this to be vocal, Verbal remembrance. They were told to speak about them. In fact, the first application was for the parents to their children. They were told to speak and tell their kids about this memory an opportunity for parents to teach their kids about the character and the faithfulness of God. So much so that a hundred years from then, when a father and son are walking through Gilgal National Forest, And the little boy observes this pile of of rocks sitting by the Jordan River. He can ask his dad, what in the world are those stones for? What's up with this weird assortment of rocks, this collection here? And the dad can look at his son and smile and say, oh, son, let me tell you the story about how God led us across the Jordan to inherit the promised land. Let me tell you about the faithfulness of God, the goodness and power of our marvelous God that we serve. That's powerful, isn't it, right? But then we see a broader purpose of these stones in verses 23 and 24 of chapter four. We see that these stones struck fear and amazement into all the peoples of the earth, These stones served as a testimony to the watching world that Israel's God was the true God and he was the one that leads his people. He is mighty, he is faithful, he is just, which means he is coming. And it is to strike fear into them so that they would either turn from God or run to God, just like we learned last week with Rahab. Rahab. What do we learn was the effect that it had on the Canaanites of the land? Well, we don't have to look far. Chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts what? Melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Very similar to what we saw last week, right? These stones were a reminder to all peoples about who it is that leads God's people. And so as we consider the story and we consider what it is that these stones are meant to remind us of today, I want to give you four points of application. These four points come directly from the text because four different times in this passage, we see God teaching us saying that these things are to be so, so that you may know, so that they may know, so that the peoples of the earth may know. In other words, the specific commands or orders they received from God had a direct instructional component to them. God wanted them to do something so that they would know something. God wanted them to follow his ways so that they would remember that he is the one who leads his people. And so if the stones of the Jordan River could still speak to us today, what would they remind us about the God we serve? What might they say? Well, I believe that if these stones could speak, they would remind us that preparation is necessary to observe God's ways. Preparation is necessary to observe God's ways. We see this all the way back in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Right? God says to them about the ark, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. Uh, The focus on these verses here is seeing God, watching God and the dangers that come when we take our eyes off of God. This was not an event that Yahweh wanted the people to approach lightly as if it was any other day of life. He desired intentional, thoughtful, careful preparation. Why? So that they could fully take in and appreciate what they were going to learn about him that day. And so the command to get ready included intentional preparation. You saw that in verse 5 where he calls for the people to consecrate themselves, to make themselves holy. So that they can observe the wonders that God is about to do for them. You see, church, consecration prepares our hearts for worship. Consecration allows us to see and savor the God we serve in the way that he intends. It is to set apart our hearts and our minds so that we are consumed with him rather than the things of this world. So allow me to personalize this for just a moment. First, think about how preparation is necessary for what we do each and every week here as a church when we gather together in corporate worship. I'm not... Charismatic, and I don't know that many of you are, but I do believe that a lot of you believe in miracles because you showed up here today and your whole family is in a row and your kids showed up with matching socks and shoes today, right? We believe in miracles. We all understand that so often there is that angst of Sunday mornings. So how easy it is to just show up unprepared and rushed and hurried And tired, and guess what? I have a family. I I fully admit to that. Right? I understand that mentality. It's a reminder to us of how do we take intentional care to see and savor God each week. What are the things we can do even starting Saturday evening to prepare our hearts and our minds and our families to worship God better the next day? What are the routines that we can put in place so that we can have our hearts ready to sing and to delight in God? What are the things we can even prepare ourselves for even after service so that we can follow up and really fully appreciate the things that we experienced and we learned together as a church? Again, this is not meant to be guilty. These are just meant to, to help us think about how do we intend to intentionally prepare our hearts to see and savor God. But don't think about it just for Sunday morning. Secondly, think about how preparation is necessary for daily life. If you are not consistently seeing God's hand at work, then you need to ask yourself what things are potentially clouding your vision and your affections. Are you too caught up in the news that is distracting you in this world? Are your senses being dulled by endless hours of scrolling on social media or mindless binge-watching of shows? Is worldly entertainment clouding out your ability to see the beauties of God? I love the words of the, the, the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus great song that reminds us that so often the reason we, we lose this is because our eyes are set on the things of this world but when we choose to have our hearts set on God's word and prayer and set our sights on Christ and all of his beauty the things of this earth will grow what? Strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Church, let us be quick to prepare our hearts to see and savor God. That is what the stones would remind us of that day. But secondly, if the stones could speak, they would remind us to consider how God's presence leads his spiritual leaders. Take a look at verse 7 again, reminder of what he said to Joshua. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And I recognize the danger and the awkwardness of this section here, right? as a, a spiritual leader calling for people to trust their spiritual leaders, right? And yet that's exactly where the text shows us of what this account was meant to do for Joshua amongst the people. And it makes me think of the author of Hebrews, who says in Hebrews 13:7, "To consider your leaders and the outcome of their." way of life, and their faith. i want to take a moment to just address the elders in this room who are here. I want to remind you, men, that the Scriptures do not call for us to be known for our dynamic personalities. They do not call for us to be known for our eloquent words, or our business repertoire, or our bold decision-making. Scripture calls for us to be known among our people first and foremost for our faith, for our dependence upon God, to be known for leading well by following the chief shepherd well, to be known for caring well by speaking the word of Christ faithfully to others. And so I speak that to my own heart and to the other leaders who are in this room And church, I do not approach that section lightly. There are high expectations that are placed on your spiritual leaders, and that is good and right and appropriate. And at the same time, I gently and lovingly, yet boldly and courageously call for you to look to your spiritual leaders and trust the Lord as they seek to help you move forward in faith and pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for us this week. This Saturday is our annual elder retreat where we take extended time to think and pray and figure out how we can best lead this church for God's glory. We, we invite you into that as a church family. These stones would speak. They would ask us or tell us, or remind us, consider how God's presence leads his spiritual leaders. But thirdly, if stones could speak, they would remind us that God's power is perfectly displayed in weakness. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3 again. Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. This is how you shall know. Because God is going to do something amazing among you. He's going to demonstrate his power in your complete helplessness. These verses remind us that our God delights to showcase his goodness and his power in our helplessness. To bring an end to our pride and our self-reliance that so easily gets in the way. So that there is no doubt that we cannot move forward in life apart from the God who leads us. Again, I quote Dale Ralph Davis who says, Perhaps God brings us into impossible circumstances so bleak and so helpless for the very purpose of impressing upon us that if we make it through, if we endure, if we are not overwhelmed and washed away, It will only be because of his grace and power. It's the very reality of what Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, right? Where he says, my power is made, what? Perfect in weakness. God delights to use our weaknesses to display his power and glory. Church, faith by nature is the opposite of self-reliance. And God is teaching you and reminding you day by day to trust him rather than yourself. And then finally this morning, if these stones could speak, they would remind us to be quick to share all the marvelous things that God has done. Verses 23 and 24, chapter Four are the reminder here, right? For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. And as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. So that all may know that the powerful hand of the Lord is mighty. This had application for these people to tell of how marvelous and how wonderful their great God was. The most immediate application was for parents to their children, for parents to recall the goodness, power, faithfulness of God in their own lives and how they share that with their children. Let that be a reminder to us parents today of what God has entrusted to us and the high responsibility. But the text would later go on to say how this miracle became known to all the peoples in the promised land. And truth be told when we experience God's faithfulness, we should desire to share that with others. It should have a permeating effect on other people within our sphere of influence. Because guess what? Such good news is too marvelous to keep to ourselves. It reminds me of the The demoniac that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 where the demoniac wanted to go with Jesus wherever he went and Jesus said, no, you need to stay here. You have a bigger mission and purpose. And he sent him into all the regions. And you know what the text says? He went and proclaimed to them all the marvelous things that God had done for him. Church, how can we be silent? about all the marvelous ways that God has worked in our lives. When you recognize what you have been saved from, what you have been delivered from, how can you be silent? We have the most glorious and amazing and life-giving news that this world has to offer. Let's take it to them. I pray that this text will remind us to both treasure and share our great God with others. If these stones could speak... I believe that's what they would teach us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you again for the time meditating on your word and to remind us, Lord, of your power, your majesty, your faithfulness. Oh, you are a God who is so faithful to your people. And as we sojourn in this world, as we are aliens and strangers awaiting our final home, Lord, let us be quick to testify to the goodness that you have shown to each and every one of us. Lord, let our lives be a living and pleasing offering to you that others may know of your great power and your great majesty. We thank you for the ways that you have shown your goodness to us and pray that you would continue to do so, Lord, for the glory of your name. Amen.